In the context of a healthy local church, you're going to learn what you're good at because you're going to be rubbing up against other people. And it could be that someone is going to recognize, hey, you're really good at administration. Have you thought about going to business school? And so these kinds of conversations and suggestions that are made to us and people who know us, people with whom we have worked or, or even played a sport, you know, we've, we've done life with them, they're often able to see things about us that we don't realize about ourselves. So I think plugging into the life of a local church and then following your interests. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Jim Hamilton. Jim serves as professor of biblical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. He's also the author of a number of books, including Work and Our Labor in the Lord in Crossway's Short Studies in Biblical Theology series. Today, Jim and I discuss what to do when you hate your job. He offers encouragement for those frustrated in their work, reflects on God's original intentions for work at creation, and explains the difference between a job and a vocation. Let's get started. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you currently work as a pastor and a professor of biblical theology at a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I'm assuming you like what you do right Absolutely. now. <laughs> I'm, I'm so blessed to get to teach the Bible and serve the Lord. But I wonder, that's, that's not always the case for, for every person. Probably there's a lot of people listening right now who uh, don't really like their current job. They don't like the thing that they have to do every day, kind of nine to five. Uh, I wonder, what was the worst job that you've ever had? I think the worst job that I ever had... Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting. It really sort of goes in cycles because there were times when I really enjoyed this job. But when I was in seminary, I was actually working two jobs. And the reason I took the second job was, was that I had met my wife and I was trying to pay for the, the engagement ring and then, <laughs> you know, make extra money because I wanted to marry this girl. It's a good motivator to work another yes. job. Yes, I was very motivated to work. But at the same time, I was taking a full load of classes at Dallas Theological Seminary at the time, and then I was also working for Northwest Bible Church. So I really didn't have the margin to take on this other job, but I really wanted to marry my sweet wife. And so, you know, there were times when I went to Macaroni Grill to wait tables. That was, that's, that's what immediately comes to mind. There were times when going to work was like going to a party because there was music and there were people and I had something to do. And it was, it was, so there were times when it was just a joy. Mm -hmm. But there were also definitely times when there were lots of other things that I wanted to be doing that I couldn't be doing because I had to do this job. So I wanted to be reading my books for my classes, and I really wanted to be spending time with Jill, and I wanted to be, I mean, maybe resting from all the other stuff that I was doing, and I had to go into work. And I think what made it, what made it bad, what made it, so there were times when it was great, but what made it what made it come to mind as the worst job I ever had is the fact that it felt, it felt disconnected from, from the, the flow of everything else in my life. Mm. Everything else in my life was, I was training for ministry, I was serving Northwest Bible Church, and I was, I was pursuing this woman whom I wanted to marry in the hope that we would have a great marriage and it would, you know, be part of me serving the Lord's people. So everything else was, 
was moving in the same direction. And then I had this job that was just about making money. And so I think the disconnect between the general direction of my life and that job, and then the, the fact that it was really, you know, the, um, Lamentation says it is good to bear the yoke in one's youth. Well, I was bearing the mm-hmm. yoke. I mean, you know, I wasn't like strapped to some apparatus or something like that, but it was, it was labor, yeah. and it was, it was in addition to everything else to the point of being too much. And all of that made it where um, I didn't always have the best attitude about being there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that even people who aren't uh, currently training for ministry, aren't in seminary, aren't uh, working towards that, aren't wanting to be engaged or get married, sometimes, though, our jobs can feel um, maybe kind of just pointless, right. kind of like what you're getting at. It kind of doesn't feel like it's it's contributing something to the 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 grand plan of my life. I just yes. have to do it because I have to earn some yes. money. There's this philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about this sense of fullness. And I think what he's really getting at has to do with the way that your your sense of purpose in life, you know, what you're living for, and and the the meta narrative in which you're situating your life, kind of your your story of the world. You experience this fullness when everything's moving in the same direction. And so for me, at that time, I had that job because I wanted to buy an engagement ring. And I had that job because I needed cash. And so it was disconnected from the way that everything else seemed to be contributing to that fullness. Mm. And so... I think maybe kind of related to this, Christians sometimes distinguish between their job and their vocation. Yes. So I wonder, can you first just define that term vocation? What does that even mean? Well, so the English word is related to, it comes from a Latin root that has to do with a call. So it's really about a sense that you're called by God to do this work, this particular job. And, you know, the Lord has equipped all of us with different skills and aptitudes and interests and impulses. And when we when we sort of find our niche and we feel like, okay, I was built to do this. I think that's really what people were talking about are talking about when they talk about a sense of vocation. They feel that, that God has called me in particular to do this, this kind of work or this particular, it may be a job or it may be a particular task. Um, but I think that's what people are after when they, when they talk about vocation and, you know, life in this life in this world, um, inevitably cycles around to seasons where it feels like everything is meaningless, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless or vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And, and this is where the wisdom literature, particularly the book of Ecclesiastes really helps us think well about work because in that book, it's like Solomon is, he's saying, okay, we have this master narrative in the old Testament and we know that God created the world good and sent into the world and God promised to redeem through the seed of the woman and he's going to crush the serpent's head and we're, we're, we know that we're moving toward a new heavens and a new earth. I think Solomon's taking all that for granted and there are places where he, he ties in the book of Ecclesiastes with things taught in Genesis 1 and 2 speaking about how those who die return to the dust, this, this sort of thing, assuming you know, dust you are and to dust you shall return. And then he's, he's acknowledging that in this fallen world outside Eden, we often find ourselves in places where even after a grand building project, it feels like it's meaningless. Yeah. And even after we've accumulated great wealth, it feels meaningless. And even if, 
even if everything goes right, and, and then we step back and we reflect and we realize, well, I'm going to die. Yeah. And then I'm going to leave this to someone else who's maybe going to be a fool. And that renders it all futile, it feels like. And then he keeps coming back in Ecclesiastes to this, what I think is the positive message of the book, which is how to respond to this meaninglessness. And he says, what you need to do is you need to eat your food and, and, and you know, drink your drink, and then you need to enjoy your work. And sometimes he modifies it slightly and says, enjoy the fruits of your work. And then he, then he notes, and, and the statement is repeated in different ways across the book, and he'll note, this is God's gift to you. And then at points he'll say, um, there are people to whom God has not given the ability to enjoy their work. And that is a great evil. And so it's, it's like this, this wisdom that says, don't think you're ever going to arrive, you're not going to arrive. Don't think that the, the project itself is what's going to give your life meaning. It's not. You really need to find that place where you're walking with God and you're able to eat with gratitude, drink with joy, and, do your, and enjoy the work and then enjoy the fruits of the work. And if you, if you get there, if you, if you find that balance, you will be experiencing the gift of God mm. to you. That's what I, I wonder if people who do have that sense of vocation, and it aligns well with the things that they spend their whole day doing. Do you think it's a greater temptation for them sometimes to try to kind of load all of their significance and meaning into that work and ultimately be disappointed? Definitely. You know, we all, in our sinful flesh, we're all tempted to measure our outcomes by worldly standards. So, you know, you, you think, well, if, if I had so-and-so's gifting, then my company would have grown like his company has grown. We're, all, we're always constantly doing this to ourselves. And, and again, you know, we, we need to be thankful to the Lord. We need to enjoy what he's given to us and, <clears throat> and in, a, in a way, be, be content with, with our lot. That's a phrase that Solomon will use in Ecclesiastes. And, and, um, and we need to learn, we need to have our hearts reconfigured so that we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we, we get to a place where we know because of the resurrection from the dead, our labor actually is not in vain. So this is the, the real contribution that that last statement of 1 Corinthians 15 makes when, when Paul says, um, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I think the re- he's, he's just done this big exposition on the resurrection from the dead. And I think in a way he's responding to that reality that you find in Ecclesiastes and in Psalms and, and in Job, this reality that because we're going to die, I mean, we can think of Steve Jobs, you know, he, he, he built this great company and he, and he did all these wonderful things, but it didn't, it didn't rescue him from death. He's dead and gone. And a decade from now, maybe it's already starting to happen. No one will remember him. And, and yet if we are in Christ and will be raised in him, our labor is not in vain. There, there's a lasting value to it. And so we, we, we need this transformation that comes from, from locating ourselves in the, in the big overarching story of the Bible. Yeah, I, I read a lot of history, and I'm, 
often struck by, in a history book, we might learn about a historical figure who did something, we read a little bit from his journals or diaries, and it's, you know, it's bringing fresh life to their memory, and yet, it's often struck me that, but this is the one spot that maybe they're preserved, but if you haven't read this one book, this person's been forgotten, even though they were in their time super significant in what they did and accomplished. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned that. I don't know if you've if you've listened or I listen to a lot of audiobooks, mm-hmm. and yeah, so do I. Yeah, Robert Caro's uh, biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson. Mm, I have not. So, so Robert Caro. Oh, these there. So far, there are four volumes. Caro is aging. He's elderly, and we're we're all everyone who's read the four are hoping for the, we're all hoping for the <laughs> fifth. Um, but he has written a, a sort of memoir on his whole process, and he talks about there were these two brothers. Um, their, their company in Texas was Brown and Root, and these two brothers, Brown, uh, George and Herman Brown, they really funded Lyndon B. Johnson's campaigns. And Robert Caro tried and tried and tried to get access to them to get to get the inside story yeah. of what went on in the Johnson campaigns and why they funded him, and just he needed access to them, and he and they kept refusing to take his calls. And then what, what Robert Caro did was he moved to Texas and he was, he, was, he was going to all these places where Johnson had grown up and where the, all these places that had been his stomping grounds. And he kept seeing these public libraries that were, that were paid for, you know, in memory of Herman Brown. So George Brown was still alive. Herman had passed on. And George was building all these buildings in his brother's memory. And Caro reached out. He finally communicated to George Brown. He said, listen, no one is ever going to remember your brother and his story unless it's in a book. And that's what George Brown, he gave Robert Caro access wow. because Robert Caro was going to tell his brother's story. Yeah. And then, you know, their whole, it's, it's fascinating how in this four-volume biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, there are these mini biographies of the key figures. So you, you learn the whole story of George and Herman Brown and how they got their company going, and it, it's really fascinating. But it's, it's, it's exactly like what you said. Yeah, and even with that, even if you were fortunate enough to have a, uh, for Johnson himself, have a four-volume or five-volume biography written of you, that doesn't capture a life. That's correct. And that's a sobering thought to think about for ourselves. Most of us will probably not have a five-volume biography written of us. Right. And so we have to, we have to find our meaning. This is where this thing that I refer to as biblical theology, which really I would understand this as trying to, trying to get inside the perspective of the biblical authors. We're trying to read the Bible the way the biblical authors did. We're trying to look at the world the way the biblical authors did. And when we, if we are successful at this, what happens is our little life story gets situated in this grand overarching story of the whole world. And we come to understand the role that has been given to us to play in this world. And our work is part of that. And even, even the most, ins- are there insignificant people? Even the most insignificant people by worldly standards, as Indy Wilson points out, they're lottery winners because the, the sheer fact that they're alive is a miracle. And and they've been given a speaking part in the grand drama of, of the ages that, that the master artist is, is enacting in real life. So it's, it's, 
it really, uh, coming to understand the way that the Bible presents who God is and what the world is and what our lives are, it really gives meaning to everything. Yeah. Jumping back to that conversation about vocation, does everybody have a vocation? There are different possibilities. From our perspective, that might seem to be in question. If we think about it theologically, I believe that God is in sovereign control of everything that has ever happened and that everything that ever will happen is foreordained and predestined from before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean it feels like it's playing out that way to us. It, and, and it doesn't mean that our decisions and choices are insignificant. The Lord is able to cause what he has sovereignly predestined to come together with the choice that we want to make. And, and in our, I think that in people's capacities and, and desires, the Lord has equipped us with unique abilities and opportunities so that even if two people may have the very same vocation. So, for instance, Denny Burke and I are both, I teach at Southern Seminary, he teaches at Boyce College, um, and we're both pastors at Kenwood Baptist Church. So you could look at us and you could say, well, they have the same vocation. Yes, but we do things differently, the two of us. And, and I've often thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I regularly talk with students about dissertations, PhD dissertation thi- and things. And a student will say, well, this topic's already been researched and written on. And my response is often, well, two people could write on the same topic and it could come out very differently. So I think that, I think that everyone has some, th- I, I, yes, I, I think the Lord is going to uh, direct people. And, and we just have this way of finding out what we're good at. And, and humans are so remarkably, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Our capacities and, and ingenuities are just really stunning. And, and the, I mean, the devices in our hands, the, the, um, the technology that surrounds us, even the invention of the wheel, you know, for however long that's been in existence, um, what humans are able to do, and then the way that people can, can tweak things to make them better. And it's, it's really just stunning what humans are capable of. What would you say to the person who's listening and, and kind of wants to believe what you're saying about uh, just our, our ability to kind of find what we are called to do, what we're made to do in life and have that purpose, but really just doesn't know. Maybe, maybe they're a college student, maybe they're a high school student, maybe they're older than that, maybe they've been working a, a job they hate for years now, and they just don't know what, what their life should be oriented to. They don't have a strong sense of vision for what they should do with their life. How, how do you go about finding... Uh, that vocation or figuring out what, what God would have for you to do. So if someone's listening to this and they, and they are not believing in Jesus, I think that the first thing they need to do is wrestle with um, the knowledge of God and, and come to grips with the fact that, that this whole experience that we're having in life is really impossible apart from God. And, and so if they really want to find their meaning and their purpose, I think they're going to have to come to know Jesus and, and place their hope and trust in him and embrace the way that the creator has ordered the world. So I think, I think re- repentance from sin and rebellion against God and, and uh, leaving, leaving uh, the worship of false gods that are never going to satisfy 
and turning to Christ and embracing the teaching of the scriptures and beginning to walk with God is the first step. Assuming someone is a, is a believer, I think that they, they really ought to plug themselves into the bot, a local church. And in the context of a healthy local church, you're going to learn you, what you're good at because you're going to be rubbing up against other people. And, and it could be that, that someone is going to recognize, hey, you know, you're really good at administration. Have you thought about going to business school? And, and these kinds of conversations and suggestions that are made to us, um, someone might say, you know, you're really good at communicating. Have you thought about pursuing teaching? Um, people who know us, people with whom we have uh, worked or, or even played a sport, you know, we've, we've done life with them, they're often able to see things about us that we don't realize about ourselves. So I think, I think plugging into the life of a local church and then, and then following your interests, assuming those interests are not evil, okay? So let's just assume that we're not talking about um, an interest in what we might call the sin industries. I think that those things, those things are never gonna lead to joy. Uh, those are never going to lead to satisfaction. You're gonna harm other people. You're gonna harm yourself. Um, so aside from the fact that it will incur the wrath of God, it's also going to ruin your life, which those two things go together, the wrath of God and the ruination of your life. So you shouldn't pursue the sin industries. Um, assuming we're, we're talking about a um, up and up, you know, legitimate, um, legal endeavor, I would say follow your interests. So if you, if you like horses, um, go get around horses and then see how your particular what you see, I mean, we all see things slightly differently. So what you notice and what you're able to contribute, see how that can add value to what's happening. And last night I was talking with Robert Yarbrough, who's a, another Crossway author, and he was telling me about how when he was a young man, he was, he was a lumberjack. <laughs> and he was a believer in Jesus, and he was honest. So he, he was talking about how when he, when he was working this job, it was assumed that the lumberjacks were going to overestimate the amount of work that they had produced. So they, they send these guys out into the forest and then they report on their own productivity. And so these guys, the, the companies planned for these guys to lie to them by like 30% of their productivity. And so what the lumberjack's trying to do, who's lying, is he's trying to get more money out of the company, but he's not giving the company that amount of work and Dr. Yarbrough said, he said, I was honest. I told the truth about how many trees I had taken down and how, many, how much work I had done. And he said, eventually the locals figured out that I was not lying. And he said, people began to, to say to me, just in offhand ways, out of nowhere, you know, you'll always have a job out here. You will, you will never not have a job because they know you're telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. And so if, you know, if we, if we do our work, we, we do it with care, and we do it with integrity. I think people are going to notice the, the value that we're adding, and then they're going to compensate us for this, and there'll be, there'll be a, a growing gratification and a, and a deepening of our, our skill at it, and, and it will be productive and yeah. useful. And you mentioned that in that second point about just the value of having other people, mm -hmm. other Christians in particular, speaking into our skills and giving us ideas. Were other people in, important in your own um, discernment of what you were called to do? 
definitely. I mean, when I was in college, I can remember, I'm, I'm, I have a 15-year-old son, and I, I can see he's beginning to ask the question, what am I going to do with my life? What am I supposed to do? And I can remember agonizing over what I was supposed to major in in college. And I'm so thankful for an English professor whose name I've forgotten mm. at the University of Arkansas. And I think the reason, one of the reasons I forgot his name is because I only had one class from him, unfortunately. And so it was like he was there in my life for yeah. one semester, but he had a tremendously significant conversation with me. One conversation. One conversation. So I wrote a term paper for his class and turned it in. And at the time, I was, I was playing baseball. For the, and if you had asked me, what do you want to do? I would have said, well, I want to be a Major League Baseball player. Well, that was not going to happen. You know, I mean, I was not even cracking into the lineup. Okay, so, so I was not going to be a Major League Baseball player. That was, that was a pipe dream. That was never going to materialize. And, and so because I was on the baseball team, I was a communications major. Because I just needed an easy mm -hmm. major. Just had to get through. No offense to communications majors. I needed something that was not going to be demanding so that I could devote myself to baseball. And I wrote this term paper. And along the way, um, people had challenged me to memorize scripture. So I was just filling my mind with, with Bible. And I was also, I loved literature. So I, so I was memorizing scripture, and I was also memorizing portions of Shakespeare's plays, mm. just because I loved them. <laughs> and, and I was a communications major, and so I wrote this paper, and my professor called me in, and he sat me down in his office, and he said, he said, um, if you wrote this paper, we need to talk about your major. And he said, and if you didn't write this paper, I'm going to nail you to the wall. So he assumed that I had cheated. <laughs> he, thought, he thought that that there's no way that this baseball jock could have turned in the paper that I'm reading. Uh. And and um, and I said, no, sir. I, I wrote the paper. I wouldn't I wouldn't cheat for your class. I mean, I'm I'm a member at University Baptist Church. I'm trying to share the gospel on campus. There's no way I would cheat for your <laughs> class. And um, and he said, well, what's your major? And I said, I'm a communications major. And he said. I mean, again, sorry, no offense to communication. I think communications is valuable. You know, I think it... it but you were using it as a... As a uh, I, you yeah, were interested I was, in it. That's right. I didn't want to do communications. I was just... And, and he said, he said uh, why not study English? And I said, well, that's what I want to study. And he said, well, you should. He said, you, you have abilities. You, you, uh, you compose things well, and you, you can reason. And he said... You, the, all of that can be sharpened by reading the clearest thoughts of the best writers of the ages, which is what the English degree will allow you to pursue. And that was really significant for me. And so I became an English major. And then the question was, um, do I want to pursue a, a PhD in English or a PhD in Bible and theology? And at the time, I was already thinking ministry. And I was already thinking I would love to communicate truth that hopefully will help, help God's people. And I realized looking back on it now that one of, one of the biggest reasons I, I was even thinking about a PhD in English was simply because C.S. Lewis had been an English professor who had done ministry. So it, it wasn't long before I was steered decisively into pursuing Bible and theology and doing ministry, you know, vocationally. Looking back on it, I, I think the only reason I was, do, I was interested in English was as a platform for ministry. Yeah. So 
that was the way the Lord directed my steps. And there were, there were significant people in my life that I, that I talked with and wrestled through different requirements of pursuing these kinds of endeavors. All those people were helpful to me. Friends were helpful to me. Um, the people who, who sort of challenged me to memorize scripture were really significant because I think, I think what had made that paper good was the fact that I had stockpiled my mind with, with the high thoughts of the scriptures and the clear statements of, these, of, of, of the Bible. And then I think Shakespeare helped that as well because his thoughts are so clear and beautifully expressed. Yeah. It's amazing when we think about our lives, think back on our lives, and there often are these moments, these, these kind of defined uh, sh- small moments um, often with other people that just prove so, as we look back, usually not in the moment, you don't realize it, right. but as you look back, you see how God used that as a big, big turning point that led to the next thing, that then led to the next thing. I wonder if you can comment a little bit on um, vocation and how we think about that in, in relation to ministry. I think sometimes I've heard, um, to be honest, some mostly pastors uh, maybe seminary professors, people in that context, uh, say things like, uh, you know, pastoral ministry or some kind of ministry context. That is the highest calling that a person can have. That is the greatest type of thing you could give your life to. And I think for some people who, who don't feel called to that or, or don't feel equipped for that, maybe they would love to do it in theory, um, that can be a little discouraging. That can make them wonder, well, does that mean that my work as a computer programmer or my work as a bus driver or as a business person is sort of less than or less significant? How would you respond to that? Uh, it's one of those situations where we all wish that we, we had put things in more sensitive and appropriate ways. So, I, you know, as, as you say this, I'm, I'm thinking of the way that um, in my own I've, I've probably communicated those very things that you're articulating, and I... And I That's I, not what prompted the question. I understand. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I do think that, that there are definitely, definitely people to whom the Lord has not given aptitude, and, and it's not that they are of less value. Um, and then there are people to whom the Lord has given uh, aptitudes that enable other uh, enable ministry. So I think that I think that this is foolish, short-sightedness of people who do ministry, and who who don't they don't have the perspective that, that they need to have on the way that the Lord is working through so many different things, and and really from the Lord's perspective, it's not it's not as though He needs any of us to do His work. Um, and it's not as though he values certain kinds of integrity and self-sacrificial service and um, endeavors for the glory of his name more than other kinds of um, endeavors to, to bring about um, his glory. So uh, those are the issues. What, what are you serving? Whose glory are you seeking? How are you going about it? And, I, and it's definitely possible to do ministry in a way that is self-glorifying, uh, not self-sacrificial, dishonoring to Christ, and, and you know, denying everything that, that um, is, is uh, godly. Um, so I, I, I think that 
living out the gospel and and living out a life that honors the Lord is really what we're pursuing. Whether we're doing that as a plumber or uh, a carpenter or an engineer or a scientist or a minister, the key things are whose glory are you seeking, whose kingdom are you building, and are you pursuing this in a Christ-like way? And by that I mean, are you, are you really looking to lay down your life on behalf of other people so that they benefit from, from your self-sacrifice? Um, so, so the Christ-likeness is what, we, what we're seeking. Mm. And that seems like that was one of the big recoveries of the Protestant Reformation. You know, Luther talks about the, the dignity of the work of the, sweet, the street sweeper or the mom, uh, that there is, there is value in that in a Christian worldview. Right. Indeed. Indeed. This is a, that, that's an emphasis that um, I think Tim Keller is well known for reviving in our generation, and I'm tremendously thankful for for that emphasis, um, and I think we need to continue to communicate to people that, that what they're doing is good. Mm. So I think we, we all, we're all used to living and working and laboring in a fallen world, and we're used to, even in Christian organizations and ministry contexts, uh, we've all experienced the brokenness of work in a fallen world, whether that's just the futility of the work sometimes, the inefficiency of the work, the, the conflict that we can experience sometimes in our jobs and in our relationships with other people. I wonder, can you, do we have a sense from scripture what uh, work will be like in the new heavens and new earth? You talk about the importance of the resurrection for giving meaning to our work now, but what can we expect uh, to be doing and what does that work look like when Jesus returns? So I think we go back to um, the original creation, and, and it's fascinating that the Lord, when he, when he makes man and woman in his image, in the image of God, created he them, the next thing he does, this is always surprising, the, 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 the opening words of Genesis 128, it's, it, the surprise increases when you think about the way that we naturally expect God to regard us. You know, we... We have this sort of instinctive sense that God's going to be angry with us, that God's unhappy with us. And that's reflected in the, in the myths where the gods will send the, the, the flood because the people are making too much noise. Or, or Zeus is, you know, frustrated with all these people who are distracting him from what he wants to be doing they're or not, whatever. They're not necessarily doing anything wrong. They're just kind of annoying. Yeah, they're just there, you know. It's just that they exist that bother. It, you know, it's like what... Uh, Sirius Black said about Severus Snake, mm. Snape, it, uh, it's just that he exists. Genesis 128, God blessed them. God is happy about the people that he's made. And then he wants them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So subdue the earth and then have dominion over the animal kingdom. And then, so you take those statements, Genesis 128, um, subdue the earth, have dominion over the animals. And that's, I think, reformulated in Genesis 2.15 when God puts Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. So I think the working is like the tending of the garden, and then the keeping it is like the dominion over the animals so they don't destroy the garden. So there are two aspects of this. And then you keep reading, and after sin, he has one son who's, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying one work is good, the other is bad, but he's got one son who's a, a a worker of the soil, a tiller of the soil, 
and another son who's a tender of the flocks. So those two activities, now after sin, what's interesting about the early narratives of, of Genesis is that it's like every time the people sin, their work gets harder. You know, so after the initial transgression, they get driven out of the garden and the land is cursed. And then after, after Cain's transgression, his work is made more difficult. He's going to be a restless wanderer. And, and it's, sin just makes everything about our endeavors break down. So in, an, in the unfallen world, I think the idea is that we would be imaging God in the sense that we would be bringing the character of God to bear on our um, um, subduing of the earth and dominion over the animals. And I think the character of God amounts to you're going to make it so that life is better for everyone. So you're going you're gonna to subdue the earth and make, this is remarkable, God's very good creation even better somehow. And then you're going to exercise dominion over the animals so that everything that God created was very good, but it's going to be better because, because the image and likeness of God, those who, bring, those who bring into visible reality the character and authority and ways of the invisible God, we're exercising his reign in his stead, in his realm, over his creatures. And I think that's what the new heavens and new earth It'll, it'll be like Eden before the fall, but better mm. because we'll have experienced, um, you know, the, the other side, the transgression and the death and, and all the rest. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, well, we, we have this picture of Eden and it's a very um, low-tech kind of environment, right? Like I envision Adam on his hands and knees digging in the dirt with his hands, right? This is maybe speculative with the world that we live in today, will, will technology be a factor where we're doing those things, we're keeping the earth, we're subduing the earth, uh, but doing it in a way that would be more kind of in keeping with what we see around us today? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I do not, you know, when I think about uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, and he talks about how the seed goes into the ground, and then it comes up as something different, you know, so I, I don't know what our glorified resurrection bodies are going to be capable of. I don't know if, if reality and our experience of it is going to be transformed so that we won't need some of these technological innovations. You know, it, it, I, I think of Jesus in his resurrection body passing through those closed doors in that scene um, in, in, in the Gospel of John. And I think of um, uh, Arthur Weasley marveling over the uh, technological innovations of the muggles and he says something like the things these muggles do to avoid magic you know and he's talking about telephones and these sorts of things Uh, i don't know i don't know if we'll need these kinds of technological innovations in a resurrected glorified body i mean maybe we'll need boats but maybe we'll be able to move across water in a glorified body i don't know maybe along the lines of what jesus did so I, i think things will be so it, I mean, Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it's, it's impossible to predict what that change is going to entail. But we know it will be good. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us about work and vocation, uh, how to find it, and, and why it all matters. I appreciate your time. Thank you, brother. It's a joy to be with you. That was Jim Hamilton on God's good design for our work. 
For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Work and Our Labor in the Lord, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.